Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Otis Moss III. Otis is a renowned preacher and author and senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. He is also the author of the recently released book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. You can get connected with Otis and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Right today we have Reverend Otis Moss the third with me. I am so excited, uh, Reverend Otis. Uh, you have been such an important figure in my life over the last number of years. I remember, gosh, it must must have been like five or six years ago. The first time I ever seen you preach, I think it might have been at like one of Jackie Lewis's uh, uh, one one of her conferences, or I don't even know anymore. I don't even remember. I've seen you preach a number of times, and I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, I don't know if I've ever seen somebody communicate." Not even just preach, but just simply communicate the gospel better than you. I mean, it's pretty incredible. So it's uh, it's really an honor for me to, to hang out and chat with you for a little bit. Uh, we'll want to talk about the new book uh, that has come out uh, a couple months ago now. Uh, but before then... You do a lot of things in the world. You are the senior, uh, the senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Uh, you're obviously an author. You've written a number of books. Uh, but I'm curious, who is Reverend Otis Moss III to Reverend Otis Moss III? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for letting me be on the show and so appreciative of, of your work and, and your witness for a people's theology, just a tremendous, not only idea, but what you are casting out into the world, just a, a well, great you. bright light that you are providing. So thank you. Thank you for, for the work you're doing. And thank you for having me on. I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely. so appreciative of, of the conversation. I love the question. Uh, I just really appreciate that. You know, o- Otis Moss is just simply a uh, a brother who deeply loves God is is committed to exploring how we can do work in the world for transformation, and uh, I love movies and comic books, and I'm a basketball head too. Uh, so, so all all of those things are in the book, and <laughs> without a doubt, yeah, all, all of those all those pieces. But that's just. Really, me. I'm I'm kind of on an ideogram. I'm very much a a four, five, and a nine for those who who look oh, at that nice. ideogram stuff. Love it, love it. Well, here's a, another little fun fact about you that I I found that I didn't know about you before. But you used to run track, and you were an all American track runner back in the day. 
uh, many moons ago. Well, well just I, I don't want to put an exact date on it because I don't want everybody to know how long ago it was. But it, it was let's it just was say it was many back. moons ago. <laughs> what what uh, I was a track person too. I actually ran for a year or so in college. Uh, what 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 did you do in track? Uh, what was your kind of event uh, that you specialized in? So I started out high jump, then long jump, and then moved into the to sprints four by one, one and two hundred. But primarily was a jumper and a sprinter. Really. Love it. That's sweet. I, I ran 400s. I wasn't fast enough to do the 100s oh, or 200s. Oh, man, 400. That is a serious race. You, that, that's yes. the race of courage. Uh, yeah, I, you have to be a little dumb to run the 400. <laughs> that is the race. And now the 800 is now the race of courage. I think 400 yes. runners are in the absolute best shape of anyone in track and field. Now, there are other people who argue with me about that, but uh, that, that 400, yeah. 800 is, is a serious race. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's something else. Yeah. I, I, again, I was too dumb and I was too slow to run anything <laughs> else. So I, I got thrown into the 400 and fortunately it worked out for me uh, well enough, but anyway, that's besides the point. Let's talk about the new book. It's called dancing in the darkness, spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. I'm really excited to chat about it. Uh, before we get into kind of the content of the book, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about you and the writing process and everything. What was something that you learned about yourself while you were writing this book that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? I know you've written other books and I'm sure there's a lot of a, a learning process about yourself as you write books, but was there anything that came up in this book writing process where you're like, oh, did not know that about me? One of the things that I think I found out is that I was writing at first in a very academic manner. Okay. Uh, and that was, that was a challenge. I'm so delighted that I had just a wonderful editor and uh, also a person who was working with me uh, by the name of uh, Greg Lynchenberg. And as I'm writing, it's like, it's very academic. You're doing the academic thing. Then, then I would write again, and that's very sermonic. That's too sermonic. It's like, okay, how do you write for a broader audience? I know that I can write academically. I know that I can write sermonically, but mm -hmm. how do you find that in between that has your that has your voice that is authentic? And that was a process. That was a, that was a real process because uh, one of the pieces that we first turned in, the the editor was like, mm, "This is good, but um, I think you're framing this more like a like a long sermon." I was like, <laughs> oh, "Okay, all right, we need to go back and work on this." So, so th yeah, those are some of the things that I found out working on, on in, working on the book is learning a new literary voice mm, mm. That, that I developed over time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would imagine it's way different than, you know, you did your, I think it was your demon at CTS and, you know, you've written some other books. I know I, I read the preaching book way back in the day and, you know, th there's certainly, that's a different type of voice than what you're right. trying to do here. And I, I, so I get that, you know, there, there's certainly a balance that you're trying to, to do. And it's, it's difficult when you're like, you're so much of your voice is on Sunday mornings and to like figure out how does my voice sound differently, but it's still me uh, in a different format. It, it's, it's quite difficult. I, I don't know how much research you did in this book. I know, you know, a lot of this is kind of your own personal stories or stories, you know, from your church or others that have been a part of your church and everything. So I don't know how much like 
you know, theology you read or Bible stuff that you read uh, for, for this book. But if there was any, was there anything new that came up where you're like, wow, I've never heard about that before theologically, or I've never heard about that biblically, or maybe you were research- researching some stuff about MLK and you're like, did not know that about him or anything sort of like maybe more like theological or biblical or even historical that you didn't know before. I'm, I'm always curious about those things that people didn't know. Yeah, that, that, I, I, I appreciate these questions. Um, so I did a deeper dive in, in, into King, a deeper okay. dive into, uh, into Howard, into Howard Thurman. But one of the pieces that really didn't appear because we ended up cutting part of it off uh, in the book, it was edited out, uh, was a piece on the history of Auburn Avenue, mm. where Dr. Mm-hmm. King grew up, uh, that third ward in, in Atlanta, and really getting a complete unique history of how this community not only nurtured him but so many other activists during that time period of the 30s and the 40s and then the second piece that just blew me away as i was doing research uh talking about the history of of racism and how we came up with the idea of of whiteness and and mm-hmm. how blackness in itself uh or i should say pe- black people were moved from went from african to becoming Negro and then the N-word, how that came about, looking at the history of what was essentially the first African-American couple that we have recorded who got married in the 1600s on this soil and their experience absolutely blew me away that here Mm -hmm. you have people who possibly own one one account that they had 700 acres of land. Uh, Another account said they had 500 acres of land, but that land was eventually removed from them. Uh, They were cheated out of it, essentially, Mm -hmm. because the idea of racism began to, or what we consider to be the racialized imagination began to appear. They Mm -hmm. were first just considered to be African people who were probably indentured servants. Then as new laws came about, their ability to be able to negotiate in this colonial community began to be chipped away slowly and slowly and slowly to the point where they lost all of their wealth. Mm. And it was an amazing story of Antonio and Mary. don't really know their last names, but it was uh, Antonio and Mary that uh, in the 1600s, uh, this this couple amassed an empire that was essentially taken from. They would be one of the wealthiest, you know, families in the south southeastern United States today if they've been able to transfer their wealth down to their their mm. children, but they never were had that opportunity. Yeah, one of the things that is really sobering is to learn about the history of racialization and the the rise of white supremacy. It's super sobering, obviously, to learn about that, but then to also I think what gives me hope is to also realize how socially constructed that was, which means then if it was socially constructed, we can socially construct ourselves to end white supremacy, to end that racialization. So uh, as much as it's very sobering, it also gives me a lot of hope that it's, it is possible. It's going to take a hell of a lot of work, but it is possible. And that, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, I, pre- I appreciate that because it is true that when you, when you read it, you understand how it's constructed. And the fact that we can deconstruct this and we can create something new because it's purely a mythology that we mm-hmm. we live out. We live out a particular mythology uh, that people socially engineered in order to maintain power for a very, 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 very small group of people. And it affected not only 
people who are black, but it affected people who are indigenous and affected a large swath of people who were white. It was actually designed in many ways to keep black people and white people from building coalitions mm-hmm. in order to overthrow people who were landowners, basically plantation owners in the South. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the book. At the beginning of the book, you talk about love and justice. And I grew up in a very conservative home where we were taught to love, but I it wasn't until later on in my life that I realized that love and justice are, they're intrinsically linked. And in actually to love without justice is not to love at all. So can you talk about how justice in, is essential and is linked to love? Mm-hmm. In order for, for, for this democratic experiment that we call America to be able to flourish, I, I believe that uh, the two values that are, are missing and are necessary are love and justice. And within the, the theological and the faith uh, family and community, we have, as you mentioned, we've often separated love and justice. And love without justice is simply sentimentality. Mm. justice without love becomes legalism and brutality. But the beautiful thing, when the two are together, because they, they want to be married and they want to produce children, and when they get married and they produce children, they always have at least two children, one by the name of liberation and the other by the name <laughs> of transformation. Mm. And, and those two children grow up and begin to shift and change structures uh, in, in the world. And the, 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 the black faith tradition, the black spiritual tradition has always attempted to make sure that those two pieces were, were linked together. Mm. So justice in, in the American sense has been punishment and retribution. Justice within the, uh, the gospel framework has always been di- uh, re- distributive justice and restoration. Mm. H- how do we allow someone, hold them accountable, but then allow them to flourish and be better than what they used to be. And that's when love and justice come together, Mm -hmm. that I recognize the imprint of the divine on you. I hold you accountable, but I'm not holding you accountable just so that you may be tormented, uh, but Mm -hmm. I hold you accountable because I want to see you restored. And for those of us within, within the uh, the faith community, we recognize that is what Jesus is attempting to do over and over again. That mm-hmm. ho- I'm holding you accountable, but I want you to flourish. And that's I let, the other Sunday I was mentioning, uh, talking about that beautiful piece of scripture that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. <laughs> that we are all collectively redeemed, that we are restored, uh, we are renewed. And that's what true justice is about the idea of renewing versus destroying Mm. i think even beyond that too you can make the claim that for for justice and love to be linked at some at no point will that love and justice ever end and this is totally besides the point but like one of the things that i really get upset about the the logics of hell is that at some point with the belief in hell, at some point, somebody no longer is redeemable. At some point, no one, that person is no longer able to be restored. And I think if God is truly love and God is truly just, 
then that means that God will always be love and always will be just. And that means that that person will never, ever be outside of the bounds of God's love and justice. So God is always, even in the midst of what horrible things that person might do and say, at some point, God's love and justice, I think, will prevail. And it may take a while. Yeah, you, you're preaching now, man. You, you, you really, you're preaching. Um, <laughs> because it's interesting that we have replaced Sheol, the land of the dead in the Jewish tradition, distance from God into complete damnation of God's people. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's, a ma- that's a major leap that we, that we take. <laughs> distance from to damnation for all. You know, it's, it's, it's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. And it's a very more recent idea. And then yes. here... You know, we're trying to reclaim this ancient idea of that of a loving God, of of a God that seeks us to operate in create a just society that we are constantly creating, as you said, um, and it takes it off the table. Uh, and that was a very fascinating thing that I never, my father's a pastor, and I never heard in my church one time. Uh, the idea of this eternal damnation it was mm. always focused on this idea of of a loving and just God who demands, holds us accountable, and wants us to flourish at our highest level of who we have been called to be. I love that. Let's talk about kind of later on in the book where you talk about chaos. And at the end of the chapter, you talk about silence. And I just think it's so powerful to think about how powerful silence is in the midst of chaos. Can you talk about how silence is powerful, especially in the midst of injustice and the chaos that happens during injustice? You know, it's, it's, and I'm reminded really of what uh, Jesus did when. Uh, a group of men come to him and say, you know, we need to stone this sister. And he's silent and starts writing in the dirt and then speaks, the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, And I've always wondered what happened in that silent period because the scripture says, and the old men left first, uh, which absolutely cracks me up, which means that they had a larger collection of things that they'd done. They said they were creeping out with their finger up like, excuse me, Um, (laughs) they would need to leave out. So the the, the power of of silence is because our our vocabulary is so deeply broken that we're unable to fully articulate what is sacred, what is divine. It's always inarticulate. It's always broken and off the mark. If it was a if it was a bow and an arrow, we would always be missing. We wouldn't even be hitting the target. We'd be somewhere in the vicinity, but we never hit the target. Mm-hmm. And so, silence is one of the ways in which we can reclaim our ear versus our voice to mm-hmm. be able to hear what the spirit is speaking. And when chaos arrives. It allows us in that moment to be able to discover what are uh, the particular laws that are functioning. For example, uh, they tell you when you when you fall into the water and you know you you think you're going to drown. One of the things you have to do is you have to calm down, you have to slow down, uh, and which is counterintuitive. If you otherwise you'll be under you know be taken by the waves. In track, as mm-hmm. you ran, they told you run relaxed. 
counterintuitive mm -hmm. uh, that you have to run with your body completely relaxed, but it seems that your body's trying to tell you you have to stiffen up. Silence mm -hmm. is one of the ways in order to uh, literally run relaxed mm -hmm. uh, so that we can calm our spirits, regain our ear, and then figure out what are the laws that are operating that we need to harness in the moment of our chaos, just like a sailor. Sailors understand chaos completely. They know I don't control the waves, I don't control the wind, but if I put my sail in the right position, I can capture the wind and utilize that particular physical law to get me to land, but I can't travel to land directly. I have to tack left and right, left and right. So I have to be nimble enough. Martial arts, same thing. Uh, they teach you, especially in Aikido, uh, when the person is attacking you, use their energy. But the only way you can do that is that you have to be quiet enough, still enough to be able to witness that your opponent, not your enemy, but your opponent, uh, energy can be used to your advantage. It reminds me of the best comedians know how to use silence most powerfully, okay. right? The best <laughs> comedians are so good at using, using silence. And that's part of what makes their magic in their humor so good. And it also reminds me, I just watched this documentary about Mr. Rogers and how good he was at using silence with children. Right, we think about like a classroom and you think that you constantly have to create energy and you have to constantly create stimulation to keep these to keep the attention of these children. And Mr. Rogers did the opposite. He would use silence to capture that attention with children. It's really it's it's just incredibly powerful, but whether you're a comedian uh, or you're a children's uh, a, a children's communicator. That's that's so good. Mr. Rogers is one of my favorite uh people in general. And the brilliance of his ministry, that's just spot on. The manner in which he will pause and literally slow down mm -hmm. when intuitively the way that things are produced now, you're supposed to ramp up, speed up. But there are these quiet moments in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood where he'll say, let's sit down together now, children, in this quiet voice. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a pause. And then he'll ask a question. There'll be another pause. It's just, it's fascinating that he's using contemplative Christian methodology. Right. Order to teach children how to be fully human and engage civically and to, uh, to live a life of compassion and love, regardless of their faith tradition, he's using these very ancient principles in his teaching. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, there was this moment in that documentary where they had kind of a compilation of these moments where he would literally for like an entire minute just be doodling around with something on like th this is on air and he's doodling around, maybe doing a craft or whatever, but he's doing it quietly and silently. And it's like there's no way you would ever see that in children's programming anymore, right. ever, no. where you would have a minute of silence. I just I can't imagine seeing anything like that anymore. But yeah. Yeah, we demand noise. So, you know, you reminded me when you when you mentioned Mr. Rogers and about comedians, I thought about Thelonious Monk. Mm. Where Thelonious Monk says that music is not in the chords, it's in the silence between mm -hmm. the notes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where you make music. And and I think if we think of that on a spiritual level, that that's where 
the Holy Spirit is loose, where the mischief is called called and caused is mm -hmm. in that silence in between. That's where where things are created and, and worlds are born is is in the silence. Yeah, love that. Uh, you talk about later on in the book about liberation and specifically liberation listening, where when you know we share with one another our hurts and our pain and maybe even our joys with one another. And when we truly listen to each other, I think that's maybe when liberation happens. And uh, it reminds me of one of the things I, I did my thesis uh, a, a year ago now on embodiment, specifically like in embodied theology. And I did a lot of research around like the science of embodiment, like what's actually happening in our bodies. And one of the things I found was that our bodies are really good at mirroring each other. When we're in a really deep relationship and we're close with one another, our hearts will start to, you know, like when we're cuddling with a loved one our hearts actually start to beat at the same rhythm. And, uh, and there's a million other things that our bodies do when we're in deep relationship with one another. And yeah, I just think that this is so powerful that when we actually talk about liberation and we talk about like a listening liberation, it's not just some ab abstract idea, but our bodies actually begin to empathize with one another. They begin to mirror one another. And uh, yeah, I just think that's just really incredible to see like you, what you're describing in the spiritual practice of liberation listening uh, and uh, how that actually happens within our bodies. Like our bodies actually start to feel not just one another's pain and hurt and joys, but we actually, our bodies actually start to react with one another in that way. And I just find that really, really incredible. Uh, I don't know Have you, I don't know if I have a specific question around that, but I'm just curious, I don't know, maybe you have thoughts, comments around that. Well, I, mean, I think you're, you're right on target uh, once again. And, and the beauty of being in relationship deep relationship with with someone and not just a loved one but when we're dialoguing with each other when we're learning about each other's culture family whatever it may be that there is a shift in the manner in which uh, we communicate we act and our bodies react to it same thing happens with music same thing happens when people cook and mm -hmm. are you know having a meal together when there's laughter together and when uh, something deep and moving is shared, when we decide to be vulnerable to, uh, together. I think the research also points to the same thing, that our heartbeats uh, begin to, to shift a little bit and our movements begin to mirror each other. Children do it all the time, you know, that they, you know, they mirror a, a, a adults, especially adults that they, they have a close relationship with. That's why it's very important uh, for for people that what they believe, what they live, what they share will always be picked up by a young person mm. or a small child. And small children are amazing observers, but they are terrible interpreters. So they will mimic you uh, but they might not understand why you are doing what you do. And they mm. will come up with their own reasoning. And sometimes they will carry with them some very painful baggage because no one took the time to tell them the why and explain why dad does this or why mom does this or why brother or uncle operates that way. 
and and they carry that with them. But mm. that's part of where we've got to learn how to listen and and slow down and share. Mm. You mentioned at the beginning about Dr. King and learning about the neighborhood that he had grown up in and how that shaped him in his ministry. How does knowing our origins aid us in the movement of liberation? And, you know, whether this is a maybe a person of color or another oppressed, marginalized person or a person who maybe carries more uh, dominant uh, or normative identities. Like how, how does, regardless of where you may be, the identities you may have, how does knowing, the, how do knowing the origins aid us in that movement of liberation? There's power in, in story. That's how human beings function. We, we, we share stories. Uh, that's how we transfer information and build relationships. But the other piece is it means that our origin story, we can decide what that story is going to be. I'm not saying you make up something, but what I'm saying is if someone, if you have an experience that's painful, and that's what the point in the book talking about superheroes, superheroes and villains are essentially the same individuals. They just have, there's a nexus moment. There's a crossroad uh, that they hit. And one group says, I will use this so that I may become better. And another group says, I'm going to use this and just become bitter. You know, mm. Two-Face in the DC world, he has an incident, a painful incident, and all of a sudden it destroys his spirit and he becomes this villain. But then you look at someone like Batman and he has a painful experience. He becomes an anti-gun billionaire, essentially vigilante activist and detective because of the painful situation that that he had so the when we have a moment we can make the decision we have the power of choice and so reworking your origin story is all about mm. looking at my story do i rest in this idea that i am a victim or that i have to live in this 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 cesspool of pain whatever it may be you can choose and you can choose to have that past be empowering or that past be destructive. And you can take the stories of your ancestors and everyone has stories in their family that are extraordinary. The, mm. the stories of your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, people in your neighborhood, listen to those stories and they are absolutely transformative when you realize that people that of a different generation, what they were able to do, what they went through, what they experienced without all of the resources that we have today is something that is truly inspiring. Mm. And that's a part of reworking our origin story and shaping our story so they become empowering and not something that is destructive. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And maybe you have similar kind of reflections on your own origin stories around this. But I often will talk to my grandparents about the, our ancestors and how they came to America and all of that. And I hear some of these stories and I think to myself, how did I grow up then in a family that would have otherwise probably been oppressive to this person who immigrated to America. They were poor. They were looking for a new way of life. They, they, you know, they were looking for a new life. And, and there, there were women who were strong and powerful. And, 
and yet I also grew up in a family where, you know, feminism was looked down upon, where, you know, it's all about becoming wealthy. And, you know, there's just this very like conservative type of way of living and being. And I but I hear the stories that they tell me and I'm like, how do you not see the disconnect happening here? And so I don't know, like maybe you have similar kind of reflections on how the our origin stories somehow don't always end up making that connection to others and the story that we grew up in. And so I'm I'm curious do you have experiences like that where you reflect on like how how does how did my origin story of these amazing incredible people and how did we end up still believing some of these really harmful things? You know, I think everyone does because we are, you know, fully human with an imprint of God's uh, DNA on us, that, that God put God's fingerprint on every mm-hmm. single one of us. I always like to uh, joke, but very seriously, if, if you if you had some spiritual luminol like from CSI and started just squirting <laughs> a bottle on us, you would see fingerprints, <laughs> you know, the fingerprints of, of God. And all of us have these stories of horns and halos that, that everyone uh, has this possibility of doing something angelic and beautiful. And we also have uh, these moments of of doing something that is destructive and 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 terrible uh, with within our families. Uh, and I think that we have to learn how to embrace the totality of those stories. In my own in my own family, we were always valorized in many ways the the affirming pieces of those stories. But then there there is another side of of some of some of my. Uh, ancestors who chose to turn away from uh, the power and the greatness that was within uh, within their own DNA, uh, and that might have gone down a bottle. Uh, that might have gone down what we would now call today mental health mm. uh, challenges, uh, because they were unafraid. They were afraid to share their struggles. As as a man in the 1930s and 40s, you don't share your struggles. Mm. You just leave home and leave everybody um, because you don't want anybody to know that you have any struggles. So it's amazing to see that some take hold of their story and find power. And then others take hold of their story and assume a different posture. Mm-hmm. All of us, all of us have it. And I think that, you know, for our generation, for your generation, uh, that it's important that we acknowledge, that's what Flannery O'Connor talks about. You have to acknowledge the brokenness to see the beauty of grace, that there is mm. no grace unless there's brokenness because grace is only witness and only can be used for those who have been broken. If you're mm. perfect, grace doesn't stop by. Uh, <laughs> for the rest of us, you know, it comes by. Uh, for those of us who have been broken are in, are in deep need of, of those moments. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. 
attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. One of the things that has always just remained core to Jesus's teachings, or at least, you know, the way I, even though I grew up very conservative and have changed my theology completely, one of the things that just has always stuck with me is that core to Jesus's teachings is forgiveness and forgiveness of our enemies or opponents, as, as you've described it. And it's really interesting, as I've gotten more involved with justice uh, justice folks, especially those who are not necessarily in the Christian tradition, a lot of times there's like a, a skepticism about forgiveness. And, and I understand why, and you talk about that kind of forgiveness in the book. Can you talk about what does forgiveness actually look like in a world that's just? Uh, what, what does forgiveness look like that is also just? Mm, yeah, yeah, I think in the modern American context, forgiveness is rooted in absolution, especially for communities that have been marginalized. Uh, certainly within the African-American community, other communities have demanded, oh, we want you to for, forgive us, essentially. We don't want you to talk about anything else. Uh, we don't want you to, to talk about your rage and your, uh, your passion and your, mm. your deep hurt and pain. We don't want to hear that. It makes us too uncomfortable. And for some, when they hear forgiveness, they are thinking it's absolution. They're thinking, because again, our words are so inarticulate, and the manner in which what we say and how people receive it, because they have all of these things that are going on with them, they can't hear the word. That's why I always have real issues with you know, certain academics or people who are outside of a particular community trying to frame what the community is actually saying. It's like, mm. you're not a part of it. You, you never asked the question. You, know, you just went and borrowed somebody else's definition. So forgiveness really has nothing to do with the person who has injured you. It has everything to do with saying that I refuse to carry your water anymore. Mm. I no longer will allow your image, your words, your spirit to have a portion of my heart. We're not going out, hanging out. We're not buddies now. But no longer when I hear your voice, when I hear your name, do you make my spirit shudder? Because I've released you from having power over me. Mm. That's what forgiveness is. It is something that the person who has been injured gives to themselves and then puts them in a position if the person takes on accountability where there can be some form of reconciliation down the road. Mm. Dr. King says that the problem with the American justice system is that uh, we want retribution and you can murder a murderer, but you cannot murder murder. You can execute the liar, mm. but you cannot end lying. And often in our country, we want to elevate the fact that we have 
jailed and then executed this individual as if it's some great triumph. But justice and love keeps coming back. How do you restore so that we do not continue to repeat the same actions over and over and over again? Right. It brings us back to that first conversation we had where damning somebody, whether it's damning them to hell or damning them to a jail cell, is not accountability. That is an avoidance of accountability. That's right. right? right. And I, I think it's similar in that way of, you know, a forgiveness that is just trying to be absolution mm-hmm. is not that there's no accountability in there. And it's no. actually, therefore, an avoidance of accountability. And that's where I think if we actually truly have forgiveness that it is ingrained mm-hmm. with accountability, that's where I think maybe that true transformation happens. It really does. It really is. I say in the book, I use the example of uh, the Mbembe tribe in Southern Africa. When Mm. someone violates uh, the rules of society, usually a young person is this, this technique is utilized. They bring that young person into a circle with all of the elders and other young people and mothers and fathers and uncles. And that young person has to stand in that circle while all the elders, they don't say, why did you do this? They sit there and each one, they go around the circle and talk about how amazing this young person is and what potential you have. And they do it over and over again Mm. until the young person breaks down crying and they want to restore themselves. They want to redeem themselves in the eyes of the community and live up to the gifts that are inherent within their own spirit. That's restoration. That's mm-hmm. causing someone accountability instead of saying, you know, you're a terrible person, you know, we want to excommunicate you from the community. The community comes together and said, you, 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 you were not born for this. Yeah. This is not who you are. Do you know your mother and father prayed for you and that we celebrated you in your mother's belly? And when you came out, you know, they just go on and on and on until the young person just can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. weep. This is an, that's an extraordinary act of justice right there mm-hmm. and accountability. Yeah, I was talking with somebody recently where they were like, if we actually took Jesus's commandment about loving our neighbors, if we actually did that, like our actual neighbors around our neighborhood, if we actually did that, I don't think there would be a need for jails and prisons anymore Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we would actually love our neighbor to hold them accountable and restore them. And we wouldn't need to ship them off and again, excommunicate them from the neighborhood. Uh, I I think that's just a really powerful, like if we actually did this, it would be an entirely different world. And I think it's, again, I think it's possible. It's a world that's possible. Without a doubt. Uh, Towards the end of the book, you talk about grace and you finish the chapter with uh, this incredible story where you talk about your father being introduced by Dr. King and a, a Nazi trying to rush the stage. Can you share that story? I just think everybody needs to hear this story. This is an incredible story. Can you share that story and then talk sure. about why is grace so powerful when it comes to justice? Why is mm. grace so powerful mm. when it comes to that? Yeah. So, so the story is uh, my, my father was to, uh, he was to speak and uh, he, he was a lieutenant in and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference also was one of the organizers for what was the Atlanta sit-in movement, or the Movement for Human Rights was the, the name that they had chosen during that time period. 
uh, in the late 50s and in the 60s. And he was to speak. Um, and I'm not sure what I forgot the city. Was that Albany? I'm trying to remember the, uh, the city where he's supposed to be speaking. Uh, and Dr. King was introducing him when this self-professed Nazi runs the stage and attacks Dr. King and begins to pummel him. Of course, the, uh, the other bodyguards, they grab him, pull him back. And Dr. King specifically communicates to them not, you know, not to harm this person. Uh, do not, you know, pummel him back. And the gentleman was expecting to be attacked by these extremely large, you know, buff <laughs> brothers <laughs> who were also working in the movement. Uh, but instead, they laid hands on him. They laid hands on him in a different way. Mm. They began to pray and praying that the spirit that was causing him, that spirit of a racial hatred, that spirit of white supremacy would be removed from him. Mm. And they say that the man was literally dazed and confused when the police showed up. Because he kept saying they, they, they should have attacked me. He wanted them to, 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 to attack him, to prove right. his point, essentially. But he couldn't understand why they didn't operate the way that he had envisioned with, with the same type of hatred he had for them. And in the book, I talk about that he, he was left dazed and confused, and he was also left amazed by grace in, in the process. And when grace functions, this unmerited, this unwarranted act that shows up, you know, for us, it's a humbling act. And when we are amazed by, by grace, how it operates in small ways, little graces that we experience, and on, on a larger scale, it humbles us and causes us to pass grace to other people. And that's something mm -hmm. that we, we don't do very often in civic society, that we, we don't often uh, pass on grace, say our grace, uh, and give grace uh, in, in a variety of ways. And it's essential in injustice because there are moments where there have to be grace moments, just period, especially, and I, and I believe this fervently, especially for, for young people, for, for juvenile, quote unquote, offenders. We, we've got to have a, a grace system, a system of accountability and a system of grace that we see young people uh, not as, as evil and destructive, but just like the Mbembe tribe, they would say, you have great potential and, and grace needs to operate in, in, in those moments. And I think that our, our society, our world, our educational system would be, would be much better if we had just a touch of grace. It does really, I think, the, the story of this this Nazi that rushed the stage and, and attacked MLK, it reminds me of th this tribe, too, where it's like the, the men that prayed over him are basically doing a very similar thing to what this tribe does with you know a child that might have not been doing the right thing, where it's like you're praying over him the the truth about who he is mm -hmm. he is not a he is not a person that has to submit to white supremacy right he is a child of god and then if he lives into being a child of god 
there can be reconciliation and that there can be love between all these folks. And it's really powerful then when you hear the truth about who you really are and that you don't have to be this this child to the the demon of white supremacy, to the child of the demon of homophobia and sexism, right? That when you realize that you actually are a child of God, that will radically change who you are. Yes. And you, you live to transform life. And we, he was wearing Nazi clothes, but he wasn't a born a Nazi. And, right. and most of the time when we are operating in a destructive manner, we're just wearing those clothes. I mean, that we, and those clothes can be removed and you can put on some new clothes. And, and then if you continue to walk, you can, you can walk in your full authenticity of, 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 of who you are. But those are the kind of conversations that we have to have on a civic level of, of what kind of, of nation do we want? What type mm-hmm. of world do we want to create? And what type of faith community will we be a part of? And what is our vocation and project uh, as a human being? What have we been called to? What light are we going to bring into a room? Mm-hmm. At the end of the book, you shared this story of the West, the West Baptist or the Westboro, Westboro. Baptist Church mm-hmm. protesting at your church and how many of your church members resisted them by making sure people got into your church safely. Uh, and, and I think this is just an incredible example of how resistance is love. And it also reminds me of people just living into what Ashan Crowley has described as the otherwise world, where you just live into what the world that we imagine, the world that we hope for, the world that we long, live like that, regardless and in resistance to the world that's actually happening. And maybe you'll actually start to see the, 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 you'll actually see the world change and transform in the way that we hope and long for. And I'm just curious uh, around, you know, when it comes to a story like that of the Westboro Baptist church protesting your church and, and your church resisting that, can you talk about how those moments of resistance that the moments where you're living into that otherwise world is a moment of love? Uh, because at the end of the day, this is what this book is about love and justice. And so I'm curious how those kind of connect when you actually live into it, where you're not going to live into what the, the protester, the Westboro Baptist church is demanding of you. You're living into an otherwise world. Uh, and, and so anyway, I, I don't know if that, that's articulate or not. Uh, no, but no, no, whatever your that, thoughts, comments on that are. I, yeah, it's a great, great, great question. And I'm glad you brought that up. It, it's really an act of with sacred serendipity, uh, the sacred serendipity of God in that moment when we found out that Westboro Baptist church, um, I, I really don't like putting church at the end of it just just doesn't fit the the westboro people (laughs) let me put it that way because it just i think it's so disingenuous and kind of a false narrative to to associate them in any way with anything that jesus does even if it's just you know at a a great distance but uh nonetheless so we 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 found found out that morning we're going into worship uh that westboro is outside and they are protesting they're protesting they've got these signs and they have cameras they're protesting then senator barack obama using very racialized language i might add and they're also screaming and hollering at people going into church and so i'm 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 concerned i'm worried i'm like oh gosh i said what 
what are we going to do for, for several reasons? One, Westboro is trying to get on video a confrontation. Mm. And Westboro understands the racialized imagination. They may operate, how cruel they may be. If they get a Black person on camera, it will go viral and be used in these kind of conservative circles as exhibit one of here is this community Barack Obama comes out of, and uh, they are X, Y, and Z. Uh, right. And then we just go through a whole nother media gauntlet gauntlet and it just becomes it just becomes it, it creates its own little narrative from there. So and that's when the spirit was really clear and the choir was marching in the church. I mean, they had their robes, they had their walk, they're doing their thing, they're marching the church. And I stopped them and I said, look, we've got the Westboro people outside and they're saying some horrific things about Senator Obama. They're saying horrific things about our church. They're saying these terrible things. This is what I need you all to do. You all are in your choir robes. I need you to do some ministry right now. I need you to go outside. I need you to surround, each of you surround one of these people who have bullhorns. And I need you to sing this little light of mine as loud as you can so no one can hear anything that they're saying so people can come into church peacefully and their sounds will be drowned out by the glory that you are bringing. And the choir was all in. And I got to tell you, I mean, they were just like, oh, okay, we got you, Rev, we got you. And so they roll out. They surround these protesters. And I don't think the choir has ever sung, uh, offered sounds at this level ever in their life. Uh, <laughs> it's like, why can't you do that on Sundays usually? I mean, they, 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 they have assistance. They, this is, I mean, without a microphone, the sound was so powerful that it just completely drowned out every racialized horrific word coming from these people and there's the image that i always have is i remember there's several one one lady's named hattie and and hattie has this amazing voice i mean and she stands all of like five one okay miss hattie is just bad to the bone and Miss Hattie is 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 looking up at this guy who's like six four, and there's about five other elders with Miss Hattie around this man, and they're all little, but they're they're just clapping, and their voices are so powerful. The man they've never touched him. He keeps moving backwards until he falls in the street, <laughs> and I'm just like, that is the power of of love and justice merged together. Mm. Here is a community that recognizes that, that we are loved by God, who we are. We're rooted in who we are. We're unapologetic. We're unashamed of who we are. And we're going to use our sonic ability to change uh, the words that are coming out of the mouths and from the lips of those who've come to do us harm. It was a beautiful thing to see. But what was more powerful is after they were finished, you know, Westboro, they went and got in there. They looked half drunk, got in their, their van and drove off. But when they came into church, when the choir came into church after that, I, as God is my witness, 
I've never heard the choir sing like that in my life. I've <laughs> never heard the choir sing like that since. It was the most unbelievable sound I have ever heard in my life in a church. I don't know. It was like, like God's voice inhabited the songs, and it was at a level that we almost just shut down everything in church and just let them just sing the entire time because it was i've never seen a, a a spiritual ruckus like that and and all because they decided to stand up and two forces that were attempting to destroy they became so deeply empowered in the moment who would have thought that the best way to uh, do some exercises before you record some vocals is to uh, go protest the <laughs> westboro baptist folks <laughs> Maybe that maybe next time uh maybe next time the choir goes and goes to record maybe that's uh that's the way that they do it yeah, you know you get that, your that's voice, the way to get their voice nice set. and ready get level set get the level set that's how you do your sound check <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Uh, Reverend Moss uh the tagline of my podcast is called exploring uh inspiring and liberating theology so how do you hope dancing in the darkness inspires and liberates its readers you know, I pray that uh, the book will uh, cause people to reflect, uh, that it will cause uh, people to go deeper in terms of this idea of love and justice, and also make people uncomfortable, uncomfortable with the way that they're looking at the world, looking at themselves, looking at, at other people, and believe that, you know what, it is possible for me with my little voice, with my little corner of the world. Uh, that I can contribute something to this yet-to-be United States of America and help create something that is not yet, but hopefully will be as we continue to trust and to do the work day by day. Yeah. And the biggest thing is it is possible. I, I have to constantly remind myself, in, in the midst of all the injustice, another world is still possible. It is. And that's the hope that I, that I, uh, that I live into and I try to. <laughs> well, you're doing it. You're definitely doing it with this podcast for sure. Thank you. So, so thank you. Uh, Reverend Moss, uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Certainly. Uh, you can connect with us uh, at Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side of Chicago. If you're ever in Chicago, uh, just come visit us on the south side, the best side uh, of, of Chicago. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter at OM3 and Instagram at Otis Moss III. Or you can check us out on Unashamed Media. Uh, that's our media arm. We produce films and podcasts, mm -hmm. and we've even done some music projects and poetry uh, and other unique uh, aspects, trying to just lift people's spirits and also have them uh, reflect on some of the destructive aspects of of our society. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but those are some different ways that you can connect with us, and we'd love to be in dialogue with you. And if you're ever in Chicago, you got to come by Trinity. We'll love it. I, I mean, I, hopefully I'll be in Chicago sometime soon. Uh, I've been there plenty of times, but I will definitely come on by and, and hang out. It would be a great time, especially on a Sunday. It would be wonderful. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You got to come by. So you haven't been to Chicago until you've come to visit Trinity. And then you also got to uh, make sure that you get some uh, a good hot dog and some popcorn while you're here. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Reverend Otis Moss, again, it's been an honor to chat with you, to chat about the new book. Uh, it's just really, really incredible. So thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it. My pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me.
If you would like to connect with Otis and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.